If you're new with us, we are in uh, the Old Testament book, the, the book of Daniel. We love to work through books of the Bible, and uh, we're just going verse by verse through this book that is uh, here uh, set in the 6th century B.C. Um, God's people are in exile in Babylon, but this chapter is about the fall of the Babylonian Empire. It begins with a party, and it ends uh, with something, something different. Uh, and it's a great joy for us to look at it uh, this morning. Let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we do that. Father, indeed, our help must come from Thee. We lift our eyes to the hills. Where does our help come from? From You, the Maker of heaven and earth. We pray that You come today and open up our eyes, strengthen our faith, help our unbelief, humble our hearts, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Use Your Word now to build up Your church in our most holy faith. We pray in Jesus' good name. And God's people said, amen. So one of the things we've been considering in the book of Daniel is how God is sovereign. He's sovereign over human history, over the affairs of men and women, and that he's sovereign over our hearts. And this book was intended to encourage and instruct weary believers who are in exile. And it's a book I hope, I trust, is also strengthening your heart and, and giving you encouragement if you're weary as we consider how God reigns over all and how Christ's kingdom is the only kingdom that is everlasting. Now what we read about in chapter 5 is the arrogance of a king who refused to learn from his predecessor. We meet a new king, Belshazzar, followed the previous king we looked at last week, Nebuchadnezzar. And as a result of refusing to learn from Nebuchadnezzar, he incurred the swift judgment of God. Many Proverbs come to mind as I think about this chapter. A scoffer does not listen to rebuke. A fool flaunts his folly. Disgrace comes upon the man who ignores instruction. Or one of my favorites, he who hates reproof is stupid. Or as my father-in-law likes to say, you can't fix stupid. He's a great philosopher. Another philosopher, Hegel, once said that the only thing we learn from history is that we have learned nothing from history. And that's certainly exemplified in the life of this arrogant king whose pride is displayed in how he refused to be teachable. And we once again learn about the dangers of pride in this chapter, and we learn about the importance of humility. Good things happen to those who humble themselves before the Lord, and dreadful things happen to those who lift up their heart against the Lord. Belshazzar's foolish arrogance brings to mind the legendary story of St. Patrick, 5th century missionary to Ireland. The story goes, one night, the night before Easter, uh, the night before Easter happened to coincide with a major pagan festival that was being held on the hill of Tara in Ireland. And in defiance of pagan tradition, Patrick lit a bonfire in the distance against the uh, tribal ruler's order. This ruler, who was named Laguar, was incensed. Who is it that dared to commit this crime against my kingdom, he shouted. He must die. Laguar sent several druids, that's like a priest, wise men, magicians, to seize Patrick and bring him before the king. And when Patrick came in before the king, he didn't come penitent. Rather, the story claims that he summoned the power of God to raise up one of the druids in the air and then released him. And that he then called down darkness and an earthquake, which killed 50 of Laguar's men. But the king still wouldn't let Patrick go. The next morning was Easter, and Patrick was brought back and challenged by the Druid to a wonder-working battle. First, the Druid made snowfall waist-deep, but Patrick made it disappear. The Druid made fog appear over the land, but 
Patrick made that disappear as well. Finally, Patrick prayed and set the druid on fire. Great missional methodology, right? <laughs> that made LaGuardia especially furious, and he began to take steps to have Patrick punished. But the missionary stopped him, saying, If you do not believe now, you will die on the spot, for the wrath of God descends on your head. The king stopped in his tracks and said, It is better for me to believe than to die. Clearly, Patrick has some ability to call down uh, uh, divine judgment upon his enemies. And so, as the mythical story goes, LaGuar believed, and that day turned to the Lord, and a number of his tribe believed as well. So put yourself in that man's shoes. If you saw someone do signs and wonders like that, wouldn't you take the claims about God seriously? Wouldn't you reason that God's judgment is not something you want to endure? That's what happens in Daniel 5, but Belshazzar does not humble himself before God. He knew that Nebuchadnezzar had been turned into a wild beast because of his arrogance, presumably saw it with his own eyes. Notice that verse 22 of this text when he says, you, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. So the the issue is not ignorance, but arrogance. And it's a word for all of us. It's not just a word about Belshazzar. It's a word to anybody who have knowledge of God's word, that we would humble ourselves before him. As Ralph Davis puts it well, Bible-believing churches and fellowships rightly place a premium on the place of the word of God, but we must be awake to the peril of having the word without the spirit. We must plead that the Spirit of God will cause the Word of God to be obedience-producing and life-transforming. For when the truth does not humble us or lead us to worship, we are simply Belshazzar clones. The transition from Belshazzar to uh, Darius the Mede took only a night. We must not think, however, that this account is merely about Belshazzar. It is about Presbyterians and Baptists and Anglicans and Pentecostals who have hidden Belshazzar attitudes and who have never listened to the testimony of Belshazzar's predecessor. Last verse of the previous chapter, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So may the Lord give us wisdom. May may humble our hearts. And let's look at this in five scenes. First of all, the king parties. And what a party it is. First four verses. Belshazzar makes this great feast. We should say a word, I guess, about Belshazzar because we've immediately went to a new king without any introduction. Nebuchadnezzar died in 562 BC, about a 43-year reign. Three kings followed quickly before Nabonidus took the throne in 555, and he reigned until 539 when Babylon was taken over by the Persians. Belshazzar was the co-regent. He ruled in the place of Nabonidus, who was out on a multi-year campaign. So Belshazzar is the de facto king. Later he offers Daniel third place in the kingdom rather than second because he was really the second in in line, Belshazzar. Uh, He could have been Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. He is called his father. We don't know, uh, but the language could either refer to father or just simply a successor. The fact that there's no introduction also alerts us to what the writer is doing in Daniel and what he's not doing We're not just given a history of what happened, though he's recording real history. He he has very little interest in chronology. 
We're just immediately introduced to somebody without any background. And that is because the book of Daniel is doing something theological. His, his intent is to teach us, again, about the sovereignty of God over nations, over rulers, over kingdoms. And there's only one kingdom that will last forever. And so here's another guy, off he goes. Another guy comes, off he goes. Uh, and, and that's just sort of how the book of, of Daniel flows. Well, this cat Belshazzar throws this huge party to show everyone how huge he was. Apparently had a, a big room to do it in. A thousand people were there in attendance. And he, you get the impression that he's really just kind of showing off, right? Drinking his wine in front of a thousand. Now, what's interesting, if you don't know this story, and if you haven't read the whole story, we didn't read the whole story, is that at the end of the chapter, the Persians are outside the city walls. So why is he partying, even though his, his, his city's about to be uh, taken? It doesn't look like he's really rallying the team for war. Um, maybe he's trying to give an impression that there's nothing to fear and that he's majestic. We don't know, but what is clear is that his, he is arrogant, he is defiant, and he is blasphemous. Verses 2 to 4, he calls for the vessels that were taken from the house of God, Nebuchadnezzar took, and he decides that, you know what, let's just drink out of these holy vessels, and let's make a toast to false gods. But God will not be mocked. This uh, expression of pride and idolatry will be dealt with. But in this moment, Belshazzar raises his glass and he says, this is basically what we think of Yahweh. I hold him in my hand. Here's what we think of your gods. Ralph Davis says, we can put it crassly, contempt for God's stuff is the same as contempt for God himself. <laughs> if you arrive, he says, let's say at your office and find that your desk, chair, filing cabinets, briefcases, coffee maker, computer pictures, and knickknacks are all sitting in the hall outside your office door, you immediately get the point. It's not merely that your stuff is out, it's that you are out. <laughs> so Belshazzar's demeaning of Yahweh's vessels was his way of demeaning Yahweh. It was not simply, he says, a drunken slob, but a profane slob. And he is, in the words of the New Testament, drinking judgment on himself. But all God has to do in the, in the face of these mighty kings is just, in this case, literally lift a finger. <laughs> He's going to write something on the wall. And as it turns out, this will be the last night of the Babylonian Empire. Fascinating, isn't it? It's just over like that. Soon the Persians will say, turn out the lights. The party's over. This is very similar to like the Jesus' story of the rich fool in the New Testament, who's not worried about anything, who says, soul, you have ample goods laid up for yourself. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And Jesus says, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? What good is it to gain the whole world? Or fly to space and lose your soul? Can have everything you want. This guy's got it all. And in a moment, it's gone. The king parties. Secondly, the king trembles. Immediately, I love this word in verse 5. Immediately, as he's toasting, in defiance to God, in great idolatry, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. A lot of people are familiar with the phrase, the writing is on the wall. This is the story. Where do we get that phrase from? 
A lot of people don't know the story or what the story is teaching, so I'm happy to talk, to, talk about it, right? <laughs> he, he sees writing on the wall. I'm sure the king had beautiful decorations on the wall. Every palace surely has beautiful decorations. He's got something incredible on the wall now, and for him, something very dreadful. He doesn't know what it, what it is, but when he sees the finger right, verse 6, the king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him, his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. Rembrandt has a famous uh, painting of this. Um, there's a copy of it. It's good to do an illustration that's not sports related. I think you would agree. There's one for you, for all you highbrow people. Day class A. Um, Rembrandt, you can see the writing on the wall. You can see the knees knocking and color changing as he's giving his toast. And now, now he is terrified. Verses 7 to 9, he calls on the entourage once again. We've seen this film before, haven't we? Let me get my, my court magicians and the sorcerers and so on and see if they can help me. And nobody's able to help. Verse 9, he's still alarmed, his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. We don't know, king, we're perplexed. Once again, we see how false religion always lets you down. Provides no solutions. No real solutions. Whether that's occultism or uh, agnosticism or any other man-made uh, concoction, invention. They can't offer any solution. And so now in this moment, this king is alarmed. Now, is it good or bad to be alarmed? Well, if God wants to alarm us so that we may turn to him, I think we would all say that's a kind terror of the Lord. And maybe you've had that kind of crisis yourself. Or maybe you're in that kind of crisis. God is sovereign over all of these things. And maybe these crises will turn you to God. Here, the king sees a finger riding on the wall. He should have humbled himself, cried out to God, asked Daniel to lead him to the Lord, to, to be reminiscent of Nebuchadnezzar's faith. Our friend Ben Palka, who planted the church in D.C. out of IDC, for his, his testimony was not fingers on a wall, but fingers on a trigger that led him to faith. As some of you know, Ben was... He was a drug dealer out of this little house, he and his buddies in Buffalo. And one night, guys busted in, had guns, took money, took their drugs, and they were freaked out. And so they did the only thing they knew to do as, as unbelievers, they didn't know what to do, so they went to Blockbuster Video, <laughs> right? For some of you youth, that's where we used to get our movies, <laughs> Blockbuster. We'd ride our horse over there and like <laughs> rent that baby out. And you know what they rented? They rented the Left Behind series. That's, <laughs> what do you rent if you're freaked out, you don't know what to do? <laughs> I, I, that's not my recommendation for you. Nevertheless, they took them back, and then they said, we've got to find a church. And they go find the first church nearby, and Ben heard the gospel and believed on the spot in that service. And his buddies did as well. They start a Bible study in that house, and, and it's 80 people in a Bible study in what used to be a house that sold drugs. That's a crisis that woke them up and sent them to Blockbuster and eventually to Jesus, right? 
Here there is a crisis, and unfortunately, we don't read of a similar story with Belshazzar. Use your crisis well. Allow the crisis to draw you to God and not to be in defiance of God, because it can do one of those two things, right? Like when you're in a moment, a real moment of peril, man, it can make us hard-hearted, bitter, or perhaps it can humble us to cry out to the only one who can help us. Well, we see here the queen rolls in. And the queen rolls in, she advises, verses 10 to 12, and she says, basically, I know a man. There's this guy named Daniel. She was likely the queen mother, probably the wife of Nabonidus, perhaps Belshazzar's mother. Her relationship to Belshazzar is not clear, but it is clear that she was devoted to Nebuchadnezzar. You see her words in verse 11, and there's kind of a little needle in her words as she puts the emphasis on your father. There is a man in your kingdom in whose spirit is, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him <laughs> chief of the magicians. <laughs> she talks like some of your mothers, doesn't she? Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, Daniel at this point had been demoted. He'd been reassigned. It's like Belshazzar doesn't know who this guy is. And he was, you know, the, the right-hand interpreter for Nebuchadnezzar. But now he, he, there, there's, there's no indication that he, he's aware of him. You see how the, the queen really commends Daniel. Verse 12, she goes on, his excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams. A similar language that's used of, of the Messiah in Isaiah and other places. And would this, that this be said of all of us? She's basically saying he's filled with integrity. He's wise. In the words of Paul, maybe May we be well spoken of by outsiders. That, that's what she does here. She, she commends this servant, Daniel. And think about this. By this time, Daniel would have been an older man, may say an old man, depending on what you consider old, right? But he would have been around 60 years old. Kind of on the edge of retirement. And he gets called out of retirement to give an interpretation. I love this picture, this, this older man who's being called on to do something extraordinary. And that's encouraging because you never know when your most important work is ahead of you. Until we're in the ground, God's not finished with us. Right? And you may be approaching 60. I know a guy, my friend Joel Reagans, who at age 57 decided to go on the mission field. He'd been a music minister in church for 35 years. And he says, I'd lost my passion I felt called to the nations. He and his wife left, went to Ukraine. That's how I got connected to Ukraine and the whole story from this missionary. He's now in his 70s. And he, uh, first time I met him, just had a couple guys around him that he's investing in. He says, this, this is the most important work I've ever done in my whole life. And I said, man, you inspire me. Daniel here is inspiring us. He gets called out and he doesn't cave in. And he's still got the lion's den coming up. He's he got a lot of stuff ahead of him, Right? And now he declares, verses 13 to 23, he declares a short sermon and then the interpretation uh, to, to the king. He uh, is pulled out here, verse 13, the, set the stage. Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard that you have the spirit of God, the gods in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. 
Now the wise man, the enchanters, have been brought in before you to read the reading and make known to me the interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of this matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to us its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a gold chain around your neck <laughs> and be the third ruler in the kingdom. You're going to, this is not LSU in the Old Testament, purple. There's no, there's no saints who are LSU fans. Everybody knows that. I'm, I'm just kidding, Christy. Um, and you're going to have this Flavor Flav necklace around you. You know, one day we're going to get those for Imago Day in the choir, with choir robes, big old medallions, and uh, do our thing. And you're going to be the third ruler. In, some of you want to be in a choir now. Good. All right, let's go. But Daniel answers back in verse 17, basically like, I don't want your stuff. He says, let your gifts be for yourself and give your awards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. <laughs> He's like, I don't need your stuff. I'm an old man. Why do I need this stuff? And Daniel basically is not wanting the approval of people. He's not wanting the glitter. And what the world needs from us is our message, not our approval or our gifts or their gifts rather. What they need is our message. And Daniel says, I'm going to give you the message. You can keep all the other stuff. And before Daniel gives the interpretation, he gives a short sermon, verses 18 to 23. You know, all the king asks for is an interpretation. And Daniel makes the most of this moment. I've got the audience with the king, and I might as well go in for a bit. And so he basically says to Belshazzar, you haven't been paying attention. You haven't been paying attention to what what has happened and, and what, what had happened <laughs> with, with Nebuchadnezzar. Notice he says, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and language trembled in fear before him, whom he, would, he killed and whom he would he kept alive and whom he would he raised up and whom he would he humbled. But here's the point, he says, but when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. We read that last week, Daniel's commentary. He was driven among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwellings with wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. For what purpose? As we looked at last week until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind, and he sits over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. You have not humbled your heart. He said, you knew about Nebuchadnezzar when he lost his mind, you knew the lesson of humility. You knew that this was done so that you would know the Most High is, is King over all. So you're without excuse. His problem isn't ignorance. It's arrogance. Having the right data doesn't lead to change all the time. The problem wasn't information. It was application. You knew all this. I was thinking about this. I didn't mentioned this in the nine, it just came to my mind. When I was in college, we, had a, we were on a road trip, baseball team, and we had a Bible study in the hotel room. And we were, I don't know, seven or eight Christians, and the rest were doing other things. Um, and, but we called, and they all came in for this particular Bible study. And I remember my friend, his name was Kenny McKinney. That was his name, like Tony McTony. 
was Kenny McKinney. He was a pitcher. And he, he uh, I forget what passage he chose, but he basically preached the gospel to the guys. And then he basically said, now you're without excuse, guys. You've heard. Now what are you going to do? Don't say on the last day, Lord, we never heard. Right in this moment, you're hearing. It's kind of that way with Daniel as he goes up in front of the king. And he says, you knew all of this. You've, you've hardened your heart against God. And so we see here, don't we, that pride is at the center of rejection toward God. Pride. The fall of Satan, pride. Fall in the garden, pride. Throughout history, pride. Belshazzar, pride. In our own day, Alistair Begg put it well. Every pastoral challenge that I have observed in decades of ministry can in the end be traced to one thing, pride. A lack of humility and a vaunting of power or prestige or security or success. Well, here this king who looked impressive at the beginning of the chapter. Things go south because all it takes is God to lift a finger and the pride are humbled. The proud are humbled, rather. And it is a tragedy to know the word of God, but to have a hard heart, to grow up in the church, to be around things of God, but to disregard it. And remember, this book is not written originally to the Babylonians or the Persians, but to Israel. And you ask, why did Israel get in captivity? It is because they hardened their heart toward God's word. This is to teach insiders You see, a lesson about the need to receive God's word, as James says, with meekness. There's an interesting scene in uh, Jeremiah 36, Jehoiakim, the the king, and uh, Jeremiah. uh, God says to Jeremiah, write all of this on the scroll so that my people may basically repent and receive forgiveness and not be sent away into exile. And the scroll eventually makes its way to Jehoiakim, and as his associate reads the scroll, he takes a knife. It's in the winter, the writer says, and he's got a fire pot over here. And as the scroll is read, he takes his knife and cuts it and throws it in the fire until the whole scroll is burned up. That's what he did with God's Word. A vivid analogy of what people often do in their hearts. So we need the Spirit of God To help us, like Paul says to the Thessalonians, to receive the word of God as it is, as the word of God, not as the word of men, which is able to to work work sanctification in our lives. That's Daniel's sermon. It's his sermon to Belshazzar. It's his sermon to us. Let's humble ourselves before God and receive his word in the meekness of wisdom. He tells him further in uh, verse 23, the vessels of his house was brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and of gold and of bronze and iron and wood and stone, which you do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. He says to Belshazzar, further, it is this God that is giving you breath in this moment. It's this God who has your life in his hands. All your ways are before him. And you haven't honored him. And it's not because you didn't know. It's because you've lifted up your heart against him. This warning to us is a kindness to us. That we may honor our God who gives us breath. 
And it's a joy to honor our God who gives us breath. Well, he then gives the interpretation. It doesn't take long. Verses 24 to 28. You see some interesting words. Then from his presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, and parzin. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Very, very striking here. You see in the footnote, if you have an ESV or other translation, perhaps, how these terms are defined for us, and Daniel also defines them for us. Mene, your days are numbered, tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. You're a lightweight. You're not a man of substance. It's a reminder to us that God weighs people differently. <laughs> he weighs us by a character and devotion to God, first and foremost. And this kingdom will be given to the Medes and the Persians. So the chapter begins with this king and this drinking his wine in front of a thousand, taking the vessels from the temple in, in defiance of God. And now Daniel says, it's all going to go. Verses 29 to 31, it happens in a moment. God judges. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean, the king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. What a chilling phrase. That very night. Isn't it? Judgment came sooner than he thought. Think about this. Let's get a heart of wisdom. Nebuchadnezzar had 12 months before he repented and turned to the Lord. Belshazzar had a few minutes. Let us never presume upon the Lord's grace. If God gives you an opportunity to repent and turn to him, do it. Do it today. If you're not a Christian, God sovereignly placed you here. Jesus Christ will have you. He will be everything to you. The real king of your heart. We don't know when that's going to be written of us that very night. When, when that's going to hang over our lives and our story. One night, it will be the last night. And what we've done with Jesus Christ is ultimately what matters. While he's holding up his glasses, making his toast, his walls are being breached. Cyrus's troops were circling the city. The Medes and the Persians were these two Iranian people. Cyrus conquered the Medes for the Persians, and so they're often identified as the same empire, Medes and Persians. Cyrus was uh, the king of Persia. We, we know when Babylon fell, and he was the one that allowed God's people to go back into Jerusalem from exile. So this issue of Darius is somewhat perplexing. He's not mentioned in any of the historical tablets of his time, and his identity is a real a vexing question. He could be the same person. Darius could be a throne name for Cyrus. That's a view of some. He could be, though, Cyrus's military general who ruled Babylon on behalf of Cyrus. And there's some, uh, some possibilities with that, given this thing called the Nabonidus Chronicle, which is a historical document that uh, describes the fall of Babylon, and that there was a general who came in under Cyrus. He could be a ruler before Cyrus, and we just simply haven't identified him in history. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day. The point is Babylon's empire is over. 
Historians confirm what we've just read, that this happened uh, during a party. Xenophon, who you're probably reading today as well with your oatmeal, uh, affirmed that it was taking, uh, the city was taken during a party of the king at night. So many Proverbs. 29.1, he who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. Let us not humble Let us not harden our hearts to God's word. Let us number our days. Lord, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. You know, a lot of people know, again, that phrase, the handwriting is on the wall. But they don't know this story. This is an important story. And this handwriting on the wall is for everyone. This handwriting. Humble yourself before Jesus Christ that you may be saved. Don't say like the rich fool in Luke's gospel, eat, drink, and be merry, for there's no judgment to come. We don't know when it will be that very night. Don't say the handwriting's not for me. He's never written anything on the wall for me. You know what he has done? He's written everything in a book. It's been written. It is written. And apart from Jesus Christ, we are all weighed and found wanting. But through faith in Jesus Christ, the ultimate man of substance, we can be saved. In Jesus Christ, we are accepted. We are secured. And saints, one day, you and I will get to go to a real party. Not some blasphemous, shallow, you know, party like Belshazzar. But we will be with the real king in the real kingdom in the only kingdom that will have no end. Belshazzar's come and go. Nebuchadnezzar's come and go. Leaders come and go. Jesus Christ is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And he will have us in his kingdom. And he's going to put all the wrongs of this world to rights. And he's going to wipe tears off our faces and welcome us into this new creation. Daniel's pointing us to that king, driving us to that king, Helping us to see that the sovereign God of the Bible rules human history. And he rules over our hearts and this encourages us. That very night, in a twinkling of an eye, it was over. And we know, in the twinkling of an eye, our Christ will come again. What day will that be? It can happen in a moment. He will make all things new and welcome us into this new creation. And so if you're not a Christian, we appeal to you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Humble your heart before Jesus Christ, the one who can give you everything your heart has ever longed for. You can have a security that when that night comes, you'll go to be with him forever. Praise God for his word. Father, we pray this morning you would write your word on our hearts. And we hide it in our hearts that we may not sin against you. Keep us from arrogance, pride, and rebellion. Give us humble hearts, obedient hearts. Lord Jesus, we praise you, we bless you for being the true king of the whole world. And your people long for you. We wait for you. We know one day our faith will end in sight. And what a day that will be. Keep us faithful, we pray until then. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen.